You know, as we begin a new year, we talked even last week that you may set goals for yourself and talked about how that's a really good thing to, to set some goals, a, a freshness, a, a new year. We enter into new seasons. It feels like a new season this weekend with it getting cooler. And that's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing that you would set goals for yourself, something that's out there that you want to attain. But whether it's that you're going to work hard this year to, to have a really good diet or that you're going to work really hard to serve other people, that you're going to be kind, more kind to people, that you're going to be more of a family man this year, whatever it may be, that you're going to be a better worker at your workplace, you must ask the question, what is the chief end of that? Does it help to set goals to accomplish things that the chief end of that is not to glorify God? What are we setting out to do to better ourselves if it's not for the glory of God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, if we were to backtrack and say, okay, my life, the chief end of man, as we see in the Westminster Catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So if that's where I begin, now let me start setting my goals. So we as a church... We've held on to this for, for some time that we uh, seek to purify the church and penetrate the culture. And when you hear that, let it be clear that we ourselves are not the ones who are doing the purifying, but it's the work of Christ in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are being pure. We're being purified. We're growing in our sanctification, looking more and more like Christ. Purify the church. And we do that as we come together in small groups. We call community groups, or some favor the term Sunday school group. You, you come together, you study the Bible, you encourage one another, then we come into this room and we teach the Word and, and we hear the Word and then we apply the Word to our lives and it takes root and then we grow and we bear fruit. That you would take time in, in your home, in, in private, to where you would go and pray, that you would get alone, maybe you have a closet that you can just clear out of space and you can get down in that closet and you can pray and just honest confession before the Lord, your, your great need for him, just being purified in Christ. And then you open up the word, maybe this year you're, you're going to read through the Bible again or, or for the first time, or you're saying, I'm going to make it this time, I'm going to make it all the way through. And I just would encourage you, something that, that I'm doing is that just reading about three or four chapters a day, uh, there are lots of Bible reading uh, programs out there that you can look at, uh, but that you just are committed to reading the Word each day. And some days you may read and go, I don't get it. I don't get it, Lord. And you know what you do with that? You take it to the Lord and you say, God, I don't, I don't get your Word today. I need your help. Explain it to me. Then other days you read the Word and you're like, oh, this is full. This is rich. This is good. And here's this purification at work. Purify the church and then penetrate the culture. What do you do with that? What do you do with this growth? You go and tell other people. You go and share it with the world who needs to hear the good news because there are no other options to God. Amen? There's, oh, hold on. There are no other options to God. Amen? Uh, there we go. Okay. All right. Because if we believe that there are other options, then we're crazy for being here. We're crazy for following this doctrine because it calls us to die to ourselves. And man does not like to die. You see, man must die. He must die to himself in order to glorify God. And here in the book of Hebrews, we've spent quite amount of time over the last year, we spent all of 2015 in Hebrews, and you may be saying, hey, we're talking about running this race, we're ready to run this thing on, okay, let's go to a new book. But thank you for your perseverance. 
because that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And, and we're getting to the end here, and, and I could have easily used this last week and started this series, but we're going to start it today, and that this would be our, our theme for this year, but that we would be kingdom-minded. We'd be a kingdom-minded people. And this is what he's reminding uh, the Hebrew Christians, the writer. He is saying, hey, in, in the beginning of chapter 12, he says, run the race, look to Jesus, run the race, and then following that, he says, endure the discipline from God. In fact, enjoy that discipline. Let that be a good thing in your life when God brings discipline in your life, brings him glory, it strengthens you. And then he says, hey, value your birthright. Value the salvation that you have. So the bowl of soup, as we saw with Esau, as he treasured this bowl of soup over his birthright, we said, hey, put that bowl aside. How many of you this week, when you heard that message last week, this week, there have been many times where you said, I need to put that bowl aside. Can I see your hand? Okay. All right. All right. I'm seeing it around. Okay. That's cool. Look, that has helped me so much in, in, in temptations to say, hey, that's just a bowl. I'm going I'm to put that aside because I value a birthright in Christ. And then today, we're reminded of two mountains. So we're going to look back, and then we're going to look forward. And that's often what this writer has done. It's like he can't give enough comparisons to people. It's like we read this and go, people, don't you get it? Don't you get that Jesus is better? I mean, that's the whole theme. We've, we've heard this over and over. But the truth is, that, and, and if we don't keep hearing the word, we forget, because we don't get it deep down that Jesus is better. I mean, there are multiple alternatives that we come up with that we think are better than Jesus. They say, no, Jesus is better. And I'm going to remind you that if you go back to your heritage as as Hebrews alone and you forsake God, you forsake Jesus, you just write him off, then you have Mount Sinai. But for those who embrace the cross, those who look to Jesus, you have Mount Mount Zion right before you. So when we look at Mount Sinai, we see a place of terror. When we look at Mount Zion, we see a place of joy. When we look back at Sinai, we see distance from God. And when you look to Mount Zion, you see a closeness to God. There's a huge difference between these two mountains. It's all summed up with saying, hey, Jesus is better. We're familiar with this. We've, we've heard this, but we need this reminder because all through the book, it's like he's saying, remember, remember, remember. Why would he not? Because that's what the Old Testament was all about. Remember the Lord your God. Remember his promises. Because how quickly the people were to forget. Think about you in the moments where you doubt, where you question God, where you get angry, where you get frustrated, where you get depressed, where you worry. What are we doing? We're, we're forgetting God. That we're his children. Those who follow Jesus, we are his. So he's saying, hey, don't forget. Don't forget Mount Sinai. But let me tell you of a place called Mount Zion. Two completely different mountains. I'm grateful for the boldness of the first century Hebrew Christians, that they persevered because, man, they were, they were in a tough situation. And we asked the question, how could they leave their heritage? Because not only were they being persecuted by the Romans, those who just plain out hated Jesus, but, I mean, they could have been persecuted by the parents. You could have had young children, middle-aged people who are, who are following Jesus now, and then their parents are saying, how could you leave this teaching? All that we brought you into, you are a Jew. You do not follow Jesus. They nailed Jesus to a cross. Jesus was weak. Jesus was foolish. They can't even find Jesus' body now. Why, why are you following Jesus? How could you do this to us? 
Some of you in this room may face this same persecution in your home today. And there's some of you who would think, I I couldn't ever believe that somebody would have that type of persecution in the home. Yes, it's real. There are people throughout the world where the gospel divides father from son and mother from daughter and brother from sister. And so here is this temptation to just go back, just go back to what you were brought up in, keep your mouth shut, you're going to save your life. But would it be worth saving their life if they forfeit their soul, their eternity with Christ? Would that be worth it? To breathe in some more air, to have your heart beat a little bit longer, but knowing that there is still a God, the God who came down on Mount Sinai, you're going to have to face him. Would it be worth it just to have a few more breaths of air? but knowing that you still have to face him. And that's what we're getting here in this passage. Because you see, being adopted into the family of God, being his possession, for the followers of Christ, that was their heritage all along. It didn't just start at some point on this earth. No, it has been their heritage before the world was ever put together. And God has had this sovereign plan. They're his. They are his people, his treasure. Right here, he holds them in his hand. He says, I'm not going to let you go. You're mine. Don't look back to Sinai. That's my wrath. I have love for you. You are my adopted children. You see, the amazing benefit of being a true child of God is that God is no longer distant or terrifying for you. You may feel that way, but if you're experiencing that, it's not because you're experiencing that based on the word, Christian. Because there is no wrath being saved up for you, Christian. No wrath. Jesus drank it all. He didn't leave a sip for you, okay? He didn't leave a drop. It's all gone. So for you, Christian follower of Jesus, here's the good news. Man, he's not distant. He's not a terrifying God. He's a God who loves you. He's a God who wants to bring you close and, and welcome you into the family. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is Jesus speaking. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Here you go, son. These are the ones. Here you go. And what's going to happen? Because he's giving them, they will come to Jesus, repentant, following him. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what you need to be concerned with, church. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you're his, you're faithful to the end, I'll never cast you out. And the fruit will show forth that you are his. So let's look at Mount Sinai, because here's the comparison today. That if you leave the gospel, the gospel being that we are wretched sinners, we fall short, separated from a holy God. God is good, man is not. God is sovereign, he is eternal. Man was created by God, man rebelled against God, he turns his back against God, he thinks he's better than God many times, he tries to find other gods, and God says, no, I'm sending you my son. Because you don't get it. You'll never get it. So I'm sending you my son. And he will die on the cross. And those who put their faith and trust in him and believe in this blood that was shed, that will be covered in the blood, that will be made new, 
And I will be their God. They will be my people. It's the gospel. They will rise up from the dead and, and live. And, and although they die, their physical body, one day I will raise it up to meet with their soul to receive a glorified body. And there they will worship me for all of eternity, this gospel. If you forsake this gospel, then this is what you have to look forward to. Something like Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, 18 and 19. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. When was the last time you heard somebody answer in thunder? And so we see this terrifying picture as all of us, if we were the children in that time a few thousand years ago and we're standing at Mount Sinai, we see a frightening experience. Kent Hughes says the people, they were there, the people were visibly and physically assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God. That's strong language, but that is so true. They were physically visibly assaulted with the holiness and majesty of God. Here is God's majesty on this mountain. It's trembling. There's smoke. There's, there's fire. There's a tornado. There's a tempest. There's a wind. They're terrified. And man should be terrified because in the position that he's in, he is sinful man before a holy God on this mountain. F.F. Bruce says the mountain was so charged with holiness of God that for a man to touch it meant certain death. Even if an innocent animal wandered to the mountain, it would contract so much holiness that it became deadly to the touch and had to be killed from a distance by stone or arrow. So poor little sheep, poor little goat, Goes over there by the mountain, mind his own business. Nobody's looking after him. Touches the mountain. Boom! Right there. Holiness shooting through that. No man can even go touch that goat to save his life. They'd have to stone him right there and kill him. Man would die because of so much holiness. That's the picture that we see here in Mount Sinai. So, Let's look at it more, this historical account. You know, God delivered the Hebrew people out of the land of Egypt. Why did God choose the Israelites? Because they were beautiful people? Because they were hard workers in Egypt? Because they had endured for 400 years of slavery? Maybe felt sorry for them? Maybe they were entitled to something good? Hey, I've been through all the drudgery. You owe us something, God? Is that why he chose them? No. He didn't choose them off of anything that they did. Doesn't that remind you of something? Reminds it of me, the follower of Jesus. He didn't choose Israel because they were lovely. He didn't choose Israel because they were obedient. Because my goodness, no, no, they were not obedient. He chose them as his group of people because he promised Abraham by a covenant. We see in Genesis 17 that they would be his people, that he would be, that Abraham would be the father over nations. And so he takes a people group for himself, the Israelites, he leads them out, and here they go. Takes them through the Red Sea, here come the Egyptians, oh, here come the Egyptians, what do we do? He parts the Red Sea, 
says, come on through, drowns the, Adip, uh, the, the Egyptians in the sea, covers them with his wrath in the sea. So he parts the ways for his people, but then for his enemies, boom, he brings down water on them and destruction. Same God acting in the scene. And then they sing, and then they complain, and then they sing, and then they complain, and then he brings them here to this mountain. He says, you stop right here. Moses is leading them. He's acting as a mediator because man needs a mediator between him and God. What was so special about Moses? Nothing. God chose Moses as the mediator. And Moses stands between the people and God. And then he says, Moses, you come up onto this mountain. You're the blessed one who gets to come up onto this thundering mountain. And everybody else must stay back. Stay back. Keep your distance. They come near me, I kill them all. I kill them all. That's what God's telling Moses. You're saying, man, that sounds like a cruel God. God has no choice but to act in this way because of man's sin and his holiness. If he says, oh, forget about it, then God's not holy. Understand, there are great consequences when we trespass onto the holiness of God. And that's the scene that we have here in Mount Sinai. So they're hanging back. I mean, the, the, the ground is shaking the wind is blowing. All they see is smoke and fire. We see the holiness of God. Here they stop and can go no further. His holiness is on physical display for all to see. He says a few things here, and we pick up back in Hebrews chapter 12, making this connection. He says, not come to what may be touched, this, this mountain could be touched. It was a physical mountain. Uh, Moses was allowed to go up there. Aaron was allowed to go up there. The, the, the elders were allowed to go, all at God's instruction. These people, although the mountain was physical, it was a, you could see it. You could have it as a postcard. It was a frightening experience for them. It was something they could see with their eyes. They could behold. He says, you had not come to that. That was all physical. That was God's holiness on display on that mountain. And if they went any further onto that mountain, the Hebrew people, it would be considered trespassing onto God's holiness. And for that, there would be death. The blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, the tempest, the wind. These are all the conditions. There's a perfect condition for God to display his majesty when he comes here on this earth. You would think that then with the sound of a trumpet, that's when the people would be presented before God and that they would see all of this and then Moses would speak and then God would answer in thunder. You would think that when Moses went to, to meet with God and he received God's commands, that the people being warned not to break through unless they be destroyed, you would think this would be enough for them for the rest of their life, don't you think? I mean, that you would see something like this and you would never forget it. It would stay in your mind forever. There would be the fear of God forever for them. You would think that would change them, right? Because you've said it, I've said it. Just give me a sign. You can't ask for a bigger sign than this. This terrifying situation where God could crush you at that moment. Could have done it. Yet they see all of this and then as it goes further, it says, the voice whose words made the hearers, listen, beg. 
that no further messages be spoken to them. They were so afraid. They were so fearful of this thundering voice. They were saying, Moses, please tell him to stop. Tell him to stop. This is terrifying. Oh, the fear that was in their hearts to have God stop talking. They could not endure the order. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. It's so terrifying the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, that's not recorded in the Old Testament, but it is recorded in the New Testament. We know that all of God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? And so we see that this was passed down, that Moses too was trembling as he walked up this trembling mountain. But that wasn't what was most terrifying. What was most terrifying came next. The law. The law. There, Moses meets with the Lord. God gives his commands, and he is to take these commands to the people. Why? Look at it this way. They didn't grow up in RAs or GAs or Sunday school and hearing about the Ten Commandments and memorizing them and getting mad when people didn't put the Ten Commandments in their yard. They didn't grow up like that. No, they grew up as slaves. They grew up worshiping other gods. He says, you're going to be my people. Although you worship these these false gods, although you're in slavery, I'm going to save you. Come on. He says, now I'm going to give you some commands to govern you as a people and also so you'll know my holiness and your sinfulness. Because this isn't enough. This mountain, what you're seeing here, God knew that for sinful man to see that was not enough to change his life forever. Imagine that. You say, oh, for me it would. No, I don't think you'd be any different. No. No, we we can't fool ourselves to think we'd be any different than the Hebrew people here. And so he gives them the law. Here, his holiness, because he is a jealous God for his name's sake, Heard John Piper say, you know, what is the chief end of, of man to glorify God? What is the chief end of God to glorify God? Not to glorify man. It doesn't work back and forth. No, it's to glorify God. God is greatest. God is jealous for his name. And here, the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Terrified. No other gods before me. And that would seem kind of easy when you're there seeing all of this on the mountain, right? And you're terrified. But they would be quick to break this first commandment. Just as we're quick to break this first commandment all the time. You see, this is at the heart of every other sin that we commit. You break another commandment, You look lustfully at another woman. You are jealous for somebody else's stuff. Disobey your parents. When you get to the heart, you know that you broke number one. Why? Because man doesn't fear God. Man doesn't fear God. Yeah, they they were trembling. But this would not change their state of sin before God. And they don't fear Him long term. No, they fear him when he presents himself here. But they wouldn't walk away in fear. 
You would expect this to change your lives forever? No. They would rebel. Why would they rebel? How could you rebel after seeing something like this? How could you turn away? They were quick to turn away. And here's, here's how we know this. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart. The heart was not changed when God presented himself here on this mount. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? We do wicked things. We seem good in one moment and then we do something terrible in the next. You ever heard, you know, somebody who goes and commits a crime and then the parents and then the friends, they'd say, I never thought he would do something like this. He didn't seem like this kind of person. He was always a sweet little boy. The heart, desperately wicked. It's sick. And we see Aaron's response to Moses in Exodus 32. By the way, still in the same position, still here at the mountain. Here's what happens. Moses has been gone for a while. 40 days, 40 nights. It's been too long for the Hebrew people. You know what they say? Hey, if he ain't coming back, we need a God to lead us. Aaron, make us a God. Make us a God. Come on. I, I tell you what, how about you make a calf? We're familiar with calves. We saw those in Egypt. Here you go. Let's take all of this jewelry that God told us to plunder the Egyptians because God just said, hey, I'm going to let you take what the Egyptians have. When have you been able to do that? You've been enslaved to them, and now they're just going to say, here, take my wedding ring. Here, take all this stuff. You can have it. And they say, hey, bring us all of these things. Do they not think when they're looking at their jewelry and God gave that to them that he didn't have the purpose for them to make some other God? But they make a calf. And then they worship it. And they dance. And they do worse things than you would see at spring break in Panama City. They do. I mean, in fact, before Moses went up the mountain, he said, hey, consecrate yourselves Keep yourselves clean. Men, stay away from the women, okay? That was a problem even then. So when Moses comes back, Aaron says, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. They are set on evil. They couldn't get away from it. Evil is all they knew. It's what they wanted, evil. It didn't seem evil to them, but before God, evil, sinful. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Those who are lost in their sins are wrath hoarders. You're just storing it up for yourself. More and more wrath. Every time you mock God, every time you ignore that God is real, every time you take all the credit for yourself and you're saying, yes, I'm good. I don't need God. Who is God? You trust in God? He's a crutch. Come on, man. I don't need God. You're just soaring up wrath. These are your neighbors. These may be your children. It's maybe you just storing up wrath. Here, for the Hebrew people, they're just storing up wrath because all they know is evil. So get this, when they see this trembling mountain, it brings about no inward change in their life. You see, because the problem with man is that he does not take serious the wrath of God. 
That's a huge problem. I mean, get just going to the streets. How about this? How about this? How about this week? We all commit to going and talking to one person about the wrath of God. Ask them, are you going to receive the wrath of God one day? Say, oh, man, that's hellfire and brimstone. It's the truth, man. You ain't got to do it in a rude way. Just go ask them. What do you think about the wrath of God? Do you think it's real? Think it's going to happen? I would imagine that for the majority of the people that we talk to in this area, in any area of the world, people would say, no, nah, man, I don't, I don't believe in that wrath. God's love. God is love. I heard that somewhere. God is love. He's going to love me. Why? Well, here's the response. Wrath, even if it's, if it's true, I don't have to worry about that because I'm a good person. I'm good. And then, if they know that they're, they've done bad things, they'll respond this way. I've done more good than I've done bad. So God's not going to give me his wrath. Is there a person in this room that really believes that you've done more good than bad in your life? Do you really believe that? That is a lie. There's not a person on this earth besides Jesus who came, who was perfect, that could claim that they've done more good than bad. Nobody in this room, no sorry. Feelings may be hurt. Not sorry for that. Your feelings need to be crushed if you think that you've done more good than bad. What do you mean? Well, I mean, look at my actions. I've done a lot of good work in the community. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep doing good work. That, that's good. What are you rejoicing in when you do that good work? See, we look at the physical actions. When you get to the heart, the motive for why we act, we find an idol-making factory. For every good thing that we do, not for the glory of God, we receive all of this praise. We do it for other people. We do it for other things. Sin, 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 sin. Do you think God looks at that and says, oh, that's good. Thank you for that community service. No, because you're getting the glory for it. You're wanting the glory for it. We're doing good things because we want people to notice us and say, hey, you're a good Christian. What is that? What is that all about? That's not for the glory of God. It's for the glory of man. And so, no, we have not done more good than bad. And with this law, why it is so terrifying is because there is not one who could live by it except Christ. No man can live by the law. And here you see the fury of God on Mount Sinai. Why would you go back to that? Because that God, he's real. He's still alive. He is still angry against sinners. Some of you have a problem with that. But take your problems to the Bible and see that God hates sin. You may look at it and be like, hey, no, man, no problem, man. I got the same problem. See, we're good, we're good. God doesn't do that because he doesn't have the same problem. Right? He doesn't have the same problems as you. He's holy. That even when he comes down on the mountain, the mountain can't help but shake. 
filled with his holiness. And the writer is saying, do not go back to that mountain. Don't go back. You will be destroyed. Get it? So here they are, afraid of dying a physical death, and he's saying, don't go back to that mountain. You live for Jesus and you die that physical death for his glory because going back to that mountain and living a little while longer, you don't want to face him. You don't want to face him. He is worse than your persecutor. That's what he's saying to them in the first century. For us today, we want to go back because it's just easy. It's more convenient. We don't want to be disciplined. We're so rich. We are so rich with the things that we have. I don't care what your status is in here today. If you're sitting in this room, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. The things we complain about, the things that excuses we come up with are so lame before God. And I mean, we look at what others have faced here in first century. If you just study up and if you've been listening, it should bring you to your knees for the things that we complain about before God. But yet, for us and for the Hebrews, Christians in the first century, he says, your heritage, your heritage, are adopted sons. You are adopted sons. And he calls us to march forward to Zion, a kingdom-minded life. Now, that's been the dark side, the Mount Sinai. Let's now move to Mount Zion because this is where we're headed. And for whatever you're living your life, Christian, focus on Mount Sinai. Not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. That was a trick. Gotcha. Boom. Mount Zion. You can see a picture of the gospel. Not physical mountain, but spiritual. I mean, it's, it's real. But you can't see it with your eyes. You can't stand before it and tremble. But it's real. God is there. He is all around. Christ is seated at the right hand. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. I'm preaching this message as you're here today. And he describes this to the people. He says, the heavenly Jerusalem. This city of God. See, Kent Hughes points out that Mount Zion was the location of the Jebusite stronghold that David captured and made the religious center of his kingdom by bringing to it the golden ark of God. God's presence with his people. It's a symbolism. Where Solomon built the temple and installed the ark, Zion, Jerusalem, became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. Now in Christ, we have come to its heavenly counterpart, the spiritual Jerusalem from above. In one sense, this is still to come, but we have already arrived there in spirit. So in spirit... We're already in the New Jerusalem. Yes, for you, Gentile, the New Jerusalem, who have been redeemed by Christ, the New Jerusalem. This is what we look forward to. And in this New Jerusalem, there are innumerable angels and festal gathering. In Scripture, we see that there are myriads and myriads of angels. In Daniel 7, 10, 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Warriors, shining light, and there they are in a festal gathering in the New Jerusalem right now. 
in a festival gathering. Hear this today. No matter what's going on in your life, they're celebrating. They're celebrating right now. The place, Christian, where you are going, there's a celebration going on. Not fear, not trembling, not distance, but drawing close to God. This festival, this this word comes from what it was like in the Olympics back then. A gathering filled with singing and dancing. And get this. If heaven is so boring, the only reason you would think it's boring because you don't know about heaven. The Bible tells us about heaven. It's not boring. But if heaven were boring, because I know that's the fear in many hearts, we're not excited about heaven because we think heaven's going to be boring. But if heaven's so boring, then how come for thousands of years there have been angels rejoicing and celebrating? Doesn't sound like a boring place to me. For thousands of years. I mean, we get excited about stuff, and then it just kind of loses its luster. But no, here before God, always celebrating. His love and his grace and his mercy to his people. And the angels are saying, praise God, praise God, praise God. And they're still rejoicing. There, in this Mount Zion, is an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's good news when you get that acceptance letter and you know that you can now enter into that school. We are enrolled into heaven. Jesus is the firstborn. So we who are in Christ are the assembly of the firstborn. There are those who are in Christ who are in that assembly right now. Those who are in Christ who are on this earth one day, you will be a part of that assembly one day. And there in the Mount Zion is God. There is God the judge of all. If you think Sinai was bad, you don't want to see his coming judgment against those who deny his son, the firstborn. But listen, here's the good news. God is there. He will judge. We, We need to be mindful of that. We will face a judgment. So when you think you're just living your life however you want, we'll face a judgment. But you don't have to be afraid. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Whose blood? Christ's blood. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But for you who believe... As you obey the gospel, wrath is not waiting for you. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We are being made perfect. We are perfect before him. Our bodies will be connected in a glorification one day. At this time he's saying to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It reminds us, Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So as we're here and our spirits are connected to this new Jerusalem, this Jerusalem that awaits us, there's no fear, but we are his children and we are secure. A.W. Pink says this, that 
they were now as secure in him as Noah was in the ark. And God says, shut the doors, here it comes. His wrath is still coming, but not for those who are marching towards Mount Zion. No, but for those who would rather look at Mount Sinai. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, he is there. How is he the mediator of a new covenant? Because he sprinkled his blood, and it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why do we appreciate this blood so much? Because we see 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live through him. Christian, God has not destined you for wrath. You hear that today? He's not destined you for wrath. So although we are tempted to go back to where we once came from, we are called to look forward to Mount Zion. If you look back, you're dead. (laughs) If you go back, if you abandon Christ, you're eternally dead. There is no hope for you because life is in Christ. This Mount Zion, that we would be kingdom-minded. And as next week, we will look at in more in-depth, we'll, we'll connect this message with next week and being kingdom-minded where he will shake all things and only that which will be saved, those things that are his, everything else will be destroyed. That's our future. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you marching towards Zion? Or are you trying to live your life based on good works, by law, for your own glory? We've seen for us to be kingdom-minded, we must set our eyes on Jesus. We saturate ourselves with the gospel. Saturate your life with the gospel. Can I share this with you? It is challenging every day just to open up the Bible. Will you open up the Bible? Will you begin to read? Will you saturate yourself with the good news? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, can you value His Word above all? Start taking some time. You say, I'm not good at reading the Bible. Take five minutes today and read back over this passage in Hebrews 12. Just five minutes. Just look at some practical things. Just five minutes. Maybe you want to attempt reading through a book of the Bible. Read a chapter a day. And be kingdom-minded. Set your focus on His Word. Because what happens when we get off His Word, we look back. Keep looking forward to Zion. You say, I'm terrible at praying. One of the reasons that we're terrible at praying is because we're terrible at setting a schedule. A time set aside where nothing interrupts that appointment with the Lord. Set that time. I mean, really, it gets down to the heart of why we're neglecting these things, but really, there's some practical things that we can do better. 
So take what you've heard today and say, oh, I'm good. And I'm a, this, this should wake us up. It should remind us. For those who say, no, God's not a God of wrath, then maybe you're, maybe you're spilling that garbage. Maybe you're spilling that to people. And you're leading people astray. Because you just don't want to think that God is a God of wrath. The world has not seen what is coming in the wrath of God in the days to come. They have not seen this wrath. He will not peel back. He will not stop. His love is just as eternal. Are you experiencing the love of God? That's the good news. There is wrath, but you don't have to have wrath. There is the love of God. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus who spilt his blood on the cross. Are you trusting in the blood of Jesus? Today do you have salvation in Jesus? If you do not have salvation in Jesus, you might as well be standing right there on that mountain terrified and knowing what's coming. Eternal damnation for you. Never stop. So with the love of God, Jerusalem, where we're headed. Don't look back. We march forward. Because you, Christian, are not destined for wrath. Take joy in that. Persevere in that truth. With this word today, may we go and penetrate the gospel, penetrate this culture with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this sober reminder. We thank you that you have quenched that fire for us. We do not have to stand in fear that we will be damned, but that we have salvation. We experience your love. We are your children. Lord, may we take this good news and may we go with it. May we shine as lights in this community. May we penetrate this culture, the light of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those in this room that are not following you. They're following themselves. They're following other people. They're following their own desires. They think their own desires are better than you. God, will you just break them in this moment? You just soften that hard heart that they hear this, that they repent, and that they follow Jesus. God, will you do this great work? Just pray for true repentance today. For you are good. Lord, we thank you that we can be kingdom-minded in everything that we do. May our focus on Jesus become clearer and clearer day by day. Amen.